came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today. We have former Congressman Peter King to talk about what the heck is going on in, in Washington. Governor David Patterson. What's happening with the migrants? What's happening with New York City? We have Bob Hoogan, the New Jersey State Chair, uh, to talk about all the issues in New Jersey. And there's a big election in Jersey this November. Steve Cates, what's going on up in the sky? And let's start off the show with Michael Stoller on Real Estate Report. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have the honor of having my friend Brian Cohn, a partner at Goldston & Stores. Brian has guided many of New York City's most complex developers, investors, multi-generation families, and private equity firms in complex transactions in every asset class. Brian, happy to have you over here. What's happening in the world of real estate? Well, You're seeing the good, bad, and the ugly. We're seeing a lot of different things. And thank you, Michael, for having me. What we're seeing a lot of is... First of all, there is transactional activity, a lot of multifamily investment in New York City, ground-up development, but only to the extent that it has 421A qualifications. And in those transactions, there seems to be a good amount of interest both in construction financing for those projects and also in the equity that's needed. So what do you need today for, with, with regard to equity? Because I know you've been involved with two transactions in Brooklyn. So what we're finding is is you need to have a very strong credit-worthy developer entity. So that could be a developer with a lot of experience or a developer with a lot of experience and credit that's also combined with maybe a, uh, another investor or other party that's familiar to the lending community. But the key is, is to, when you're putting together these deals, is to make sure that the credit worthiness of the developer is something that the lenders and the lender community will be comfortable with. So, uh, as they would say, are there lenders in the market today if they meet the qualifications with the debt service coverage, with the loan to value, with the amount of equity? So, we're finding it depends what asset class. So, on the ground up development, for, with respect to construction, we've had some really good experiences. For example, we've closed uh, uh, deals in New York with uh, Santander. We've closed some deals in New York with a variety of other uh, debt funds and providers, including something called Hall Financial, which we recently closed a $52 million uh, uh, ground-up construction loan with. When it comes to the office market, uh, and this is something I know you've had a lot of folks talk about, it's a lot more challenging, and what we're finding is is some of the traditional lenders are comfortable lending on a very low LTV, loan-to-value basis, provided that they have a pre-existing relationship with the owners. So many of our multi-generational family clients are seeing success with banks 
like, for example, Apple Bank, um, where they have a, a long history uh, of having multiple loans that have been originated, have gone through their cycle and paid off. What's happening to the loans that have to be recast? Because, you know, five years ago they got a loan at 3%, then now the five-year rate is seven and a quarter. Well, it's, it's a complicated situation, as you know. One of the issues that we're finding is uh, there's something that people refer to as a cash-in refi, which may sound pretty simple, but that actually means that more equity needs to go into, um, into the asset in order to reduce the amount of debt that's required. And in order to rebalance these loans and restructure them, we're finding that if you have a well-capitalized um, owner – that sees a future for that asset, then they are either willing to themselves or, you know, to go out there into the marketplace to raise additional equity in order to continue on with that asset. But for those assets where they may not see a path forward, that becomes a lot more complicated. What happens when you have to return the asset to the bank or to the debt fund over there? Okay, with, and also with regard to prop, uh, transfer tax. That's an excellent question. There's a lot of complications there. But the, the broader issue is, is when you have an asset that's distressed and you're looking to hand it back or hand over the keys, it's never as simple as it sounds. So, for example, a lot of times the lenders will look at the asset and they'll say, listen, maybe there's a way that we could work it out. But the problem is, is that a lot of these lenders have already had that conversation from sometime between 2020 and, you know, within a few years after the pandemic, they've already extended their, um, their loan and their commitment. So the problem is, is when you go to hand back a, an asset to a bank, you have to understand not only what your exposure is as a borrower, but what are the exposures of the guarantors under that asset. And one of those exposures could be for the borrower is that when the asset is delivered back to the bank, it's considered two things. Number one, a, a transfer of real property. And in New York City, the combined New York City and New York State tax is slightly in excess of like 3%. And someone has to pay that. Step two is there are also issues where when you're handing back a property or, 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 or basically doing some sort of a workout where you're relieved as a borrower from an obligation – there could be an exposure to something called forgiveness of indebtedness income. Otherwise, you're paying tax on something called phantom income. So the structure from the borrower's perspective is very complicated, and each tr uh, transaction is, um, is different and requires a lot of analysis and, and, and a thoughtful approach. So how do you look at the balance of the year with, like, 20 seconds left? I think it's going to be a little bit slow and quiet, with an opportunities for investors to look at distressed transactions in ways that they can use their available capital to create value. Okay. I'd like to thank Brian Cohen, partner of Goldstein Stores, for being here. See you next week. Thank you. With us today is uh, former Congressman Peter King, served 28 years in the Congress, and Peter King... What's going on? I mean, uh, on Friday, uh, they made uh, a special counsel, uh, that guy David Weiss in, in Delaware, and uh, it seems like nothing has happened in four, five, six years. Is this for real or an appeasement? Where you, you tell us your opinion. 
John, I think there's several ways to look at it, and we're really not going to know until this whole thing plays out. I mean, on the face of it, by appointing David Weiss a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden, it gives him more power than he had as the United States attorney investigating Hunter Biden, because basically as the United States attorney in Delaware, he could pretty much only investigate matters that relate to Delaware or things that are crimes that may have occurred in Delaware. By being special counsel, as I understand that he's able to look at everything involving Hunter Biden, no matter where it occurred. So that gives more power. And on the face of it, it seems like a step forward. On the other hand, uh, the person that's being appointed is the same guy who was the uh, United States attorney in Delaware, who was investigating Hunter for the last several years. And while he didn't have full special counsel powers, he still could have done a lot more as U.S. attorney than he did. And that plea deal that he was responsible for, that the judge basically threw out of court several weeks ago, that was put together by David Weiss, the person who is now special counsel. So if he's willing to use all the power, all the new powers that he's been given, then this could be a significant step forward. But if he's going to continue to go slow on the investigation and not to take full advantage of his powers, then it's mainly just window dressing. So listen, I don't want to be overly suspicious, but it's the same guy who basically has dragged his feet for the last several years. It appears as if he let the statute of limitations expire on the serious crimes in Delaware. Statute of limitations expire is a serious, serious crime in, in, in itself. No, no it, it really is. I mean, to allow that to happen when you're investigating a high-priority case, that's the first thing, you know, one of the first things you look for. How much time do we have to investigate this before the statute runs out? And it seems all of the, many of the key crimes, alleged crimes, uh, the statute did run out, and there's no reason why U.S. attorney couldn't have moved more quickly on that. And then the agreement he worked out. And if out, it didn't move quickly, uh, uh, Peter King, uh, he should have asked for an extension on uh, on those crimes. And he also should have asked for the special counsel power back then, if that's what he claims he needed. So, no, I, I think that we're going to have to see how he carries this out, what he does, or whether or not it's just window dressing to uh, you know cover up some of the either unintentional or intentional mistakes that have been made in the past. And listen, I'm not, I don't favor going after people's relatives when you're in politics, but this is so rampant. And it seems to, again, on the allegations that are out there with what appears to be credible evidence that it reaches right into the Oval Office, right in, certainly into the office of the vice president, when Joe Biden was vice president, and uh, it appears to contradict many of the statements that Joe Biden has made. So this really goes beyond Hunter Biden. It's really a reflection on Joe Biden, and that's why you know, the investigation is really important. Congressman Peter King, I agree with you 100%. I, I hope uh, this is done uh, in good faith. I hope this is done because the American people, they, do, they just want the truth, uh, Congressman King. I mean, they just want the truth. And it really it reduces faith in government overall. It's obvious that the prosecutor is not doing his job. Well, they're applying the law one way to the average guy and giving a, a real break to the president's son. Is there anything else? What else bothers you about the things that have been going on lately? To me, what bothered me is the lack of ethics in the legal profession. I mean, that was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, that was of utmost importance to everybody that, that that's the way our country runs. Yeah, uh, especially now when it comes to prosecutors. I mean, listen, there's always been prosecutors who are overzealous or may want to abuse their powers. But in this case, it's being done on the national stage, the way they're going after Donald Trump. Listen, I disagree with a lot of the things that President Trump did 
you know, the end of his administration. Overall, I thought he was an excellent president. But things like January 6th and others, he, I think, failed in his obligations. But to make all of these things crimes, this is terrible. I mean, this is this would be like if we made what happened in Afghanistan with Joe Biden a crime. If we made the Bay of Cake pigs under John Kennedy to be a crime. I mean, there's always going to be mistakes made. And there's also going to be maybe a, a, not a person fully doing what is required to do. But those are not crimes. Those are, those are matters that should be settled in the political arena. And if Donald Trump is running for president again, then he has to answer those questions in the political arena. You don't indict him. You don't make a, try to make a criminal case out of what should be an honest political debate, especially don't do it when the president uh, is head of the, basically heads up the Justice Department. And uh, he is this department is being used to really tie the hands of Donald Trump. And he's going to be involved in at least three federal indictments. One state indictment in Georgia, which is going to be coming probably in the next day or two. And this goes against everything we stand for as Americans. And none of these, quote unquote, crimes were so dramatic, even if you believe everything that's said, that the government had to take this quick action. I mean, you know, they let the statute of limitations run out on Hunter Biden in, case that, in cases that involve millions and millions and millions of dollars. In this case, the government they could have waited. They could have waited longer. Or if they were going to bring uh, indictments. Just say that we try it after the election. But for uh, Congressman, to try to campaign, yeah. I, I'd like to ask David Weiss that question. Why did you let those problems expire like that? Yeah, to me, that's a very good question. I would hope that in Congress, the House Judiciary Committee brings in Weiss and asks him that very question. Because that's a, when you're in a high priority case, that's one of the first things you look at. How much time do I have to get this investigation done? And there appears to be no reason why they couldn't have done what they had to do within the statute of limitations period. So, no, those are real issues, real questions. I think the American people want answers to all that. But instead, it appears every time something new comes out on Hunter Biden, then Donald Trump gets either indicted the next day or the government makes a motion against him the next day or something leaks out from the grand jury you know, the next day. And I am glad to see that on Friday, I haven't read the full opinion yet, but it appears that the federal judge, and surprisingly, in the case in Washington, D.C., on the January 6th matter, which actually doesn't even involve January 6th, even though they say it does, that the judge did not give the government what they wanted as far as a gag order against President Trump. So that is the first good sign we've gotten from the, uh, the court in uh, Washington. And I hope that continues. I hope the judge continues to be fair here, because I think the government is definitely trying to railroad this through. This is being used to keep Donald Trump from running for president. One last question. We both live in New York City. I mean, you live in Nassau County. Uh, This whole thing with just migrants is way out of control. And now the special uh, envoy from uh, uh, President Biden's office coming to New York, meeting with uh, Mayor uh, Adams, says... Well, we'll help you more after uh, President Biden gets elected. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? It's really terrible nonsense. Uh, listen, I, uh, I live in Nassau, but I spent the first 20-something years of my life in New York City. I work in New York City. I'm at WABC in New York City. My father was a city cop for over 30 years, so, uh, and I went to high school and college in uh, New York City and uh, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and I grew up in Queens, so born in Manhattan. So I'm a, I'm, I am a native New Yorker. And when I see it happening, John, with this migrant situation, also I'm, I'm the grandson of immigrants. I, uh, 
knew many immigrants growing up. I can send you know immigrants. Immigration is a lifeline of our country, but it has to be done legally. And you can't have people just coming in and be sleeping on the sidewalks, hanging out, no idea who they are, what their what their health records are, what they're doing here, how we're going to accommodate them. And we have uh, what is sixty thousand or something of the illegal migrants, in addition to the immigrants we have overall. We have our own homeless situation. We're just trying to come out of COVID. We have a crime wave. And on top of all of that, now to be having every day busloads of illegal immigrants coming into the city. And ultimately, this is Joe Biden's fault. It's Governor Hochul's fault for not doing more. And in at least in the short term, I mean, Eric Adams made a big mistake by like, officially greeting all these people at the Port Authority bus terminal, giving them cell phones and uh, gifts as they come into the city, welcoming them all. And now we're being overwhelmed. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to people in the neighborhoods. Like right out here in, in eastern Queens and western Nassau County on the county line, they're talking about putting a migrant, basically a tent city, at the old Creedmoor Mental Hospital with big parking fields and ball fields there. And the people in Nassau County, forgetting Queens, that's bad enough. The people in Nassau County are going to see, again, hundreds of these migrants, all adult males, young adult males, basically on the streets with no, no place to go, nothing to do, right near where these people live, where the kids go to school. Uh, this is a, uh, it's, it's really a clear and present danger. So this has to be – Joe Biden's got to close the borders. I don't know if he will or not, but he has to do it. We have to speak out against it. The governor has to speak out more. And for the mayor to be sending a uh, liaison in, who I believe is the former Democratic national chairman, have him coming in and saying they can't do anything for a couple of years, this is great. So God knows what shape we'll be in in two years because more and more people are moving out, John, and most of those moving out, high-income earners who pay the taxes that provide the services that we need for everybody. Congressman Peter King, thank you for speaking out, and uh, we hope we can save New York as well as our country. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. I'll see you tomorrow night, Monday night. See you then. This is the Cash Roundtable. We'll be right back. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is former Governor David Patterson, and he speaks out as far as Democrats are concerned in our city, our state, our country. Governor Patterson, what's on your mind this Sunday morning? Well, I think what's more interesting than what's on my mind, John, is what's on 
Mayor Eric Adams' mind, and he expressed it this week. He estimated that we are currently housing 97,000 immigrants in the city, and he projects that there could be 60,000 more coming. So he multiplies the 97,000 times 365 days, and that comes out to $3.6 billion that would cost the city to house the migrants for a year. And the federal government has really done nothing about it. As a matter of fact, the state, under uh, with uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, has given seven times more money to this effort. They didn't start it, but they put the money in to help. Seven times more money than the federal government. So finally this week, they have dispatched uh, Thomas Perez, who is a good man, intergovernmental relations person for President Biden. But my question is, what's he going to tell him? They can't just drop by and tell him, uh, gee, we feel bad that this is happening, but uh, we can't do anything about it, because that's the answer he's been getting already. And the when you really look at the numbers here, if you wind up with 160,000 people, and let's say that number stops, it, 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 the next 60,000 is the last number, still, if you multiply it out by days, we're talking about over $6 billion that the city would have to spend. And the city did not come up with this idea. The federal government did. And the city has about 200 mega centers, shelters, and short-term places that these migrants can stay. But as Merrick, Eric Adams said, the dam has burst. That's why you had people sleeping on the street at the Roosevelt Hotel by the Indo Intake Center uh, as far back as two weeks ago. And the government, I don't see how a meeting with Eric Adams is going to solve this problem. Action would solve this problem. I was on Fox News, Governor, on Monday uh, or Tuesday. I, I lose track of the time. And I said to them, why aren't we putting them on Rikers Island? You have uh, a lot of space on Rikers Island. You have 30,000 beds that are not being used. You have uh, plenty of land where you could put up tents. And because, look, these people are migrants. They deserve, you know, we want to we wanna help them. Uh, we, we, they want to sleep, uh, bedding, and, and food, but we don't want them to inconvenience New Yorkers or citizens of New York. I mean, you can't well, walk John, around right now without being, uh, you know, abused. Well, I know, John, that they've started to use Randall's Island, and I didn't understand that because Randall's Island is over-occupied. There's a, a lot of um, soccer games, activities, schools playing each other different types of uh the, the kids the school on. kids are going to lose their their place to play soccer if you send them to rikers island nobody loses anything uh, john i can't answer that question i i don't know why that is not being considered maybe they feel it's a unhealthy place or uh dangerous even when it's deserted they, they would have to come up with an answer i certainly can't tell you but i'll tell you uh, i'll tell you what any other ideas one, one other thing though john is that in addition to the Randall's Island situation, these 200 or so service centers, shelters and the like, have already been servicing a large number of homeless people, a large number of people with uh, mental illness already. And now we're just piling out on top of them. And listen, if we're going to pick between people who are in a devastating state and our sympathy should go out to all of them, but it would seem that we would first try to assist the ones who live in our city and our, our neighbors as opposed to the migrants who did, they didn't do anything
long to get here. And they shouldn't be mistreated or mislabeled. But it's just that, you know, people open their homes at times when, when uh, say, family members have had problems or maybe their home burned down or something. But there's always a point. There's always a tipping point. And as Mayor Adams said um, very boldly and very bravely, that that point has actually come. Uh, I mean, Governor's Island, there's not, there's not much going on over there, is there? Or can we put them on Governor's Island? Uh, they have uh, some facilities over there. I don't, I don't believe it could house that many people, but that's another suggestion. Every little bit would help. Uh, that's well, that's, well, a, that's a what I mean. I think we should do what's going to make the least inconvenience for American citizens, the least inconvenience for New York citizens, and, and still take care of these people. And uh, I, I just I'm looking for something that makes a little bit of common sense. That's all. Well, I will um, say this, John. I think that the, the people, regardless of their political affiliations or their personal beliefs, are starting to come together because the city and, and the state, who's trying to help, they've given far more money than the, than the federal government has already. There's going to be a, a situation where I think these groups are going to have to come together and complain about this because you just can't keep doing this and expecting that there isn't going to be a very uh, – Mayor Adams called it a disaster, and that's where it's headed. I understand, and it is a disaster. And the other problem is, uh, David Patterson, you know, uh, we've had Governor, we, we've had Dr. Michalos on our, uh, our show. We had Dr. Siegel on our, our show. The other concern is that these kids are not, have never been checked that come over the borders. And if they're going to go to school with our kids, they should be checked and make sure they don't have any other uh, diseases that the American kids will catch. You know, there are so many new diseases or you know diseases that in the uh, of and in themselves create other diseases that becomes a huge health problem there doesn't seem to be a plan to basically address that i think this is really you know quite an outrage and i think that um, a lot of people who have tried not to engage on this issue because the federal government has its own problems. Look at what happened in Maui this week. They've spent a lot of money trying to help the people there. And they've had other forest fires and other natural disasters that have occurred, you know, in the past few months, more than usual. I understand their concerns and their issues, but they actually sent 100,000 people into New York City and told the city, you deal with them. And to me, that is running away from leadership. Agreed. Well, Governor Patterson, I am a little bit uh, t- taken back. I think, I think. Uh, look, I, we, me and you, we both love New York, and we want the best for New York. We want the best for our citizens. Uh, we be- want the best for all people. But Governor, have you heard any update uh, on money, tax money being starting to get short compared to the budget yet? Well, for the last four months, the control of the state of New York Times Napoli has issued kind of a an update, and each time there has been a shortfall where the tax receipts that are being collected are as high at times as 30% less than what's expected. That could throw the state into an out-year budget gap. Governor Hochul would have to bring the legislature back to try to balance it. I don't think she would want to have to deal with it all uh, next year. 
unless she thinks there would be a turnaround in, in tax collections, which is possible. But um, it, it's going to be a real difficult problem for the governor and the legislature to, to work out. And it's certainly going to make it more difficult for the legislature to pass some of their priority legislation. That's good legislation, but we just wouldn't have the resources to, to pay for it. Anything else you want to tell the uh, New Yorkers or the American people? Well, I'm just hopeful that uh, Mayor Adams, as he continues to try to persuade the administration that this is a devastating error that they're making by not providing resources at this point, I just want to um, hope that, that he's successful. But either way, he has certainly stood up uh, like a strong leader, and I, I think that even if people disagree with some of his other policies or actions, they have to respect him for that. Governor Patterson, we'll catch up with you again real soon. I understand you're going away for a few days. I hope to see you when you get back. I'll see you then, John. With us today is Chairman Bob Coogan. Of the, uh, he's chairman of the New Jersey Republican State Committee. And uh, they have a lot of seats up this, uh, uh, this uh, November, and I, we want to get an update What's going on in New Jersey, and what are the big uh, things that uh, New Jerseyites are worried about? Well, John, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're, we're about ready to kick back into the campaign mold. We've been into a little bit on hiatus the last couple of days with the funeral for our lieutenant governor, who very sadly died of cancer, uh, a valiant fight, and a, a great woman. And even though you know we're, we think Democrats are all screwed up on so many issues, when something like this happens, we all come, want to come together and celebrate her life and all the great commitments she had to public service and, and her efforts to make New Jersey a better place. But now that the funeral is over and it's time to get back into the real world things here, and, and the Democrats are screwing up this state so badly, the recent stuff where no longer a sex education class is divided by gender, they're divided by gender identity. So if I want to go to a sex ed class and I say I'm a girl, I'm going to go with the girls, and if I'm a girl, I want to go have sex ed class with the boys, I'm going to say I'm a boy. It's just it's ridiculous the role that the Democrats are forcing on parents and taking away their rights, and voters are going to stand up in November and say, this is freaking ridiculous. It's time for a change. Let's fix it. The other thing that is really getting momentum is this whole wind and energy master plan fiasco. The state of Rhode Island that is more blue than New Jersey just said a couple weeks ago, no more of this nonsense. It's not technologically ready. It's way too expensive. It's going to cost our ratepayers and our, our middle class and lower income people thousands of bucks extra a year. It's crazy. They said no way. But New Jersey's going ahead, and it's the dead end they're headed down to, and it's really Democrats' responsibility. And the Democrats are quietly trying to back away from the sex education initiative. They're trying to quietly back away from this energy master plan from our incredibly progressive California governor, and that ain't going to work. The voters are going to hold them responsible in November. The entire state Senate, the entire Assembly's up. It's a great opportunity for us with a fair map to really finally get our state moving back in the right direction. And, and uh, the other thing, big thing that's happening, and uh, there's so many whales are dying on the Jersey coast. I understand. Did the governor sign a big bill? Uh, building all those uh, windmills on, on, on right, oh. off, right offshore? Oh, it's just, hey, John, you can't believe it's going to be up. He wants to go all the way up to New York Harbor and do it. And it's just a fiasco. Siemens, the technology they say of the wind blades, those turbines, 
only last a couple of years. They're, they're, how are they going to recycle them? The, the whole thing is, is not thought through. It's not technologically ready. And then the best thing, about a month ago, the Democrats with the, government, the governor twisting their arm, they originally put a billion dollars in reserve for the taxpayer, or sorry, the rate payer, so that if the, if the cost of this was more than expected, which is going to be, they would rat, the rate payers would get a rebate. But, well, the, the offshore companies like Orsted, all the European companies, all foreign companies are doing this thing. They said, we can't keep going. It's too many cost overruns. They passed the bill taking the billion dollars out of the rate payers' relief and giving it to these foreign companies to keep building the freaking windmills. It is unbelievable what they're getting away with, and we've got to stop them, and November's our time to do it. Uh, understood. Uh, what, are the, what are the big items that are bothering Jerseyites? Uh, you know, in New York, we have the crime problem that everybody, you know, you can't walk to your, your local uh, drugstore to, 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 to buy anything because everything is locked up and uh, you're afraid of getting hit over the head. What's going on in Jersey yeah. on that? Yeah, we, we, have, we don't have quite the same problem, but we definitely have a crime problem. The amount of cars being stolen, carjackings, crime is up, and this whole b- b- no bail, bail stuff has just caused a big problem for people. The, 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 the policemen are still doing paperwork in the office, and the criminals already back out on the street before they're done with the paperwork arresting them. It's just so ridiculous. And the thing is, people are finally starting to realize there's a commonality to all these things, to how expensive, how high, how high tax we are, how bad the crime has become, how bad the environmental programs are, and how ridiculous the education system is becoming and the failures. There's one big common thing. The Democrats have made all those decisions. It's time for people to take back control and say, hey, thank you for what you've, you've screwed us up on. It's now time to move in the right direction. Well, Bob Kugan, uh, thank you so much for bringing us up to date. And uh, we, we pray for our cities, our states, our country. And uh, God bless you. Enjoy the rest of the uh, summer weekend. Thanks. Same to you, John. Everybody, thanks for all you're doing to get the message out to people. We've got to take action and make sure we get out and vote. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again real soon. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. What is today is Steve Cates otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he's with us every Sunday to give us a little bit of mystery, a little bit of expanding our minds to what's up in the sky. Dr. Cates, uh, or Steve, what's going on this week? Well, good morning, John. Happy Sunday to you and the listeners. I want to start off, if we can, by talking about an event that I hope many of the listeners of this particular show, the Cats Roundtable, will take advantage of. What's that? We're now at the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. It actually peaked earlier this morning on Sunday, but don't let that fool you. Observers with clear skies, John, tonight and for the next few nights, if you look into the northeast sky, after midnight to sunrise, they get to see some of this, as we like to call it, cometary dust, a meteor shower from a famous comet called Comet Swift-Tuttle. 
John, I can't think of a more fascinating thing to involve not only friends and family, but even individuals just to see the beauty of nature, these uh, beautiful meteors that come through the sky. You may get to see in dark skies upwards of 50 an hour. So don't miss it. It's really an exciting way to start and off. Is, our is it good across the United States? All over the world, John. And actually, that's a great question. You can see this wherever this particular radio show is booming loud and clear all across the nation. And I'm sure what, John, even out into the cosmos. Seriously, this is an event that if you have dark skies, that time frame from midnight to sunrise, northeast, it comes from a constellation called Perseus, thus the namesake of the shower. But I've watched it, John, like maybe many, for 40 years. And I can tell you, it's this year is great because you know why? There's no moon out. So hopefully, dark skies will give you the best view as we want. Open up people's minds on things that they probably didn't know about. Well, wow. That, uh, I look forward to uh, going downstairs tonight and, and looking out into the sky. And I hope we don't have any too many clouds. Uh, what I else is going on? Well, John, we talk about SpaceX and their Starship. Uh, this is obviously the most powerful rocket in the world. They just tested their booster rocket called this particular B-9 Booster 9. And they fired up for about three seconds their 33 Raptor engines. This is sitting on the new and improved test stand. And they shut it down because four of those Raptor engines failed to ignite properly. So Elon and his team have to go back and do another iteration of the Raptor engines. And these are engines, John, that are, you know, primarily, you know, fueled by liquid oxygen and liquid methane. Great technology. How many engines on that spaceship? There's 33 Raptor motors or engines on the bottom of that massive booster. And I mean, I, I think it sounds to me, if I was yeah. trying to get a 33 out of 33 to work, my God, I mean, uh, yeah. what's the chances? I mean, the chances of one failing is big. Absolutely. And they had a problem on their April 20th launch when they obviously saw the rocket go up. Some of those rockets didn't fire properly or stay lit. And not to get overly technical, but some of those rocket motors, John, have to do what they call gimbling. In other words, if you look at the rocket motor and you see the cone, some of them stay stationary, but some of them have a pitch angle on them. And all this has to work. So they're, uh, they're going to do some more research. They're doing iteration three, meaning Raptor engine number three, and hopefully that gets them off the ground. But they also had something else interesting. Their new and improved water deluge system, I should say new and improved, they never had it before. Last time, the rocket motors blew up most of the launch stand. Now they're flooding it with water, and Jeff, what do you get? You get less pressure, but you get a lot of steam. But there's also some other space news that we want to report. Yes, Virgin Galactic, John, flies its first tourist to the edge of space. So they had a successful launch this past uh, week, and this is interesting because they've waited so long and one of the gentlemen on there bought his ticket a long, long time ago. He's actually an ex-Olympian, and he bought a ticket, what, 18 years ago to get uh, his opportunity to go to space. So we congratulate, you know, Virgin Galactic on doing that. So much interesting stuff there. But when we talk, John, about the mystery of the week, here's something really important that everybody should pay attention to. How do solar flares really affect the Earth? And over the last few days, we've had another Large X flare, they rate them in this particular case one through seven or so. This is like a 1.5. But over this solar cycle, this is the 20th X ray flare that we've had so far. So, what happens? These flares blast off the surface of the sun. Eight minutes is how light travels from the sun to the earth. But think about what they do. This is quite interesting. Let's go back to the great solar storm of March 1940. Well, what happened then? A giant solar storm hit the earth, and this is incredible. Throughout all of North America, particularly New England, 
the New York area and over by Chicago, the electric lines were induced with over 800 volts of electricity. So here we are on 77 Talk Radio WABC. And in those days, John, the actual broadcasters, like people are hearing us right now, their voices were garbled. The radio stations simply flipped around and went off the air because these solar storms affect the upper ionosphere and where radio transmission, of course, you know, has to happen in a nearly perfect way. So we just have to let people know that we're in the throes of cycle 25, and that indeed could induce much more of these very powerful solar flares and solar storms. Wow. On any update, I understand the Mars helicopter spotted one of the rovers. Yes, John, you're absolutely right. It's 54th flight. And this little ingenuity, it's the little, little drone that keeps on, you know, chugging along. It actually got up to about 16 feet above the surface of Mars. And in the background, people should check this out, you know, just Google it or check your favorite space websites. You obviously see a picture of Perseverance sitting there with a small shadow. So this is an amazing little device, this little rover and the helicopter on Mars. And what's even more interesting about this, it actually came back to life. That is the Ingenuity little helicopter after a period of time when because of the mountainous terrain that Perseverance is in right now, it had communication difficulties. So the scientists really deserve, well, they deserve a special prize in my mind. I think you would agree to be able to communicate with a little spacecraft now. Mars is about 200 plus million miles away from the Earth, and it takes them 20 minutes or so for the light signal to get from Earth to Mars. So that's a complicated thing. And I don't know about you, but people that I know that have drones, right, John? Some of them don't even, can't even fly them in their own backyard properly. Try that from here to the planet Mars. That's bizarre. Yeah, you have to know when to zig and when to zag. And, and if it's 20-minute delay, <laughs> right. uh, I believe it's going to be very hard to zig and zag at the right period of time. Anything <laughs> else you want to tell us uh, before uh, uh, well, we, we go off uh, into, the, uh, into the sky on, uh, on this Sunday morning? Well, John, again, thanks for having me. We talk about the live sky. As I mentioned, the meteor shower tonight and the next few nights, northeast sky after midnight till dawn. Hopefully people get to see it. The planet Mercury is visible in the northwest sky. As you look, maybe a pair of binoculars might help, but it's visible to the naked eye, the innermost planet. And then, John, we get the planet Saturn returning to our skies at the end of August. This is a fascinating object to see. You need a telescope to see it, but you can see it rise with the naked eye. What do we tell John? Always remind people to always remember to keep their eyes to the skies. Check out our Dr. Sky experience proudly here on WABCradio.com as we fill you in on all these mysteries of the universe to keep our minds open and certainly to get away from some of the heat, not only in the world of politics, but also in the world of temperature to enjoy the summer. And I hope everybody has that opportunity. Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, thank you so much for for, for expanding our minds, and God bless you. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah, have a good morning to you, John. Thank you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Larry Kudlow, one of the country's leading economists, and in addition, the number one show on Fox Business between 4 and 5 every day, and the number one show on WABC every Saturday between 10 and 1 uh, Saturday mornings. Larry Kudlow, CPI came out this week, PPI came out this week, but the truth is the average businessman doesn't know if they should zig or zag. Give us your opinion. Uh, you were there. You were at the White House. You know 
Washington. What's going on? Well, look, the, the inflation numbers are coming down. There's uh, no, no question about that. The top line numbers look very good. I mean, this CPI was 3.2% year on year. That's a very good number. The core CPI flipped a little 4.7% year on year. The Fed's got more work to do. It's, it's just going to be sticky from here on in to get to 2%. That's the point that I would make. Core CPI has weight, and that's going to be a problem. And as you know better than anybody else, oil prices have been rising. Gasoline prices is now $3.84. That will add to the top-line CPI next month by, by two or three or four-tenths of 1%, depending on. The producer price index was good. Business prices have come down only 0.8%. So that's a, a good number. Hopefully, it'll stay there. But, you know, you still have an issue. I mean, uh, if you go back uh, the last two and a half years, basically, price the level of prices uh, have gone up by 16% plus. Energy prices about 30%. Grocery prices about 20%. So ordinary middle-class families, working folks, are still faced uh, with very difficult uh, increase in prices, and they're struggling with that relative to their wages. So things are looking a little better. The economy is still in a sluggish mode. The last six quarters, year and a half, you've only grown by 1.3% at an annual rate. That's not good. A healthy economy would grow at 3 or 4%. So it's a mixed bag. You know, the good news is inflation is coming down. Um, that's the best news. But look, you still have you know, the war against fossil fuels goes on. These prices are jumping now again. That could be problematic. Food prices are still very high. So I'll say better on the price front. We need growth, John. We need growth. We're not getting growth. We need well, to stop raising regulations, stop raising taxes. We need to spend Larry, too much money. What I've said, what I've said, we had a discussion on uh, a Friday, and uh, what I said to people uh, was that the – businessman has to have confidence that uh, Washington is knowing what they do. And right now, the average businessman doesn't have the confidence. They're also concerned about their own banks, and the banks are concerned about their own existence. Uh, so th this leads to turmoil. You know, and I said, if I want to buy 100 new trucks and the interest rates are 7 8%, I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to buy those 100 new trucks right now, and I'm going to wait till next year. Well, I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of uncertainty about it. Look, this administration has not helped business. That's no secret, just like they have not helped the oil producers and the gas producers. I mean, I don't know. One thing, you know, you talk about this stuff. Why don't they just declare natural gas a clean-burning fuel and stop the war against natural gas? That would be something that would be extremely helpful. They've done that in Europe, by the way. The other part of natural gas is the LNG part of the story. We should be exporting LNG all across the world, which would reduce carbon emissions in China and India. And by the way, the United States has the lowest carbon, the, the greatest carbon reduction of any of the major countries. We're making progress. I don't understand this war against fossil fuels. I never will. I think it's ultra-liberal people there in Washington, D.C., in the White House. But so just to come back, I mean, 
at least we're getting some relief. You know, I found one thing, though, John. I mean, grocery prices for families up three-tenths in uh, the month of July, so that's okay. But it's still 3.6% year-on-year. That's not okay. And, of course, wage rates are rising about 5.5%. And and this this whole thing with with electric cars, I heard you on your show the other day. Uh, You you know, we, uh, we talked about it over dinner that Ford has uh, stopped making electric cars completely electric, maybe, and uh, they lost $4.5 billion last quarter on electric cars, and they're, they're thinking of doing, to satisfy uh, uh, the whole thing with the, the EVs, they're doing hyper hybrids or something. Uh, what yeah, have you well, heard? Consumers like hybrids. Ford lost $4 billion plus on the EVs. They're going to be switching gradually to producing more Hybrids. By the way, Mr. Toyota of Toyota argued this months ago. A lot of people criticize him for it, but he's right. People like hybrids. And uh, you can't force, you know, you have to have consumer choice, don't you, John? To let yes. people buy the car they want. Have alternatives. And, and Toyota has said the chairman, is, the CEO of Toyota yeah. has said, look, let them buy uh, hybrids, let them buy diesel, let them buy gas, or let them buy EVs. We're going to give them a choice of everything. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I, I'm for consumer choice and consumer freedom. So yes. all is not right with the world. <laughs> we know that. Well, that doesn't mean it will always be so. But right now, all is not right with the world. I'm a free market capitalist. I want to see more free market capitalism. Don't don't give me central planners, John. Give me consumer choice. Well, Larry Kudlow, I agree with you 100%. Thank you for calling in, and we'll talk again real soon. Yes, sir. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.